Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I gave you a sneak peek on my stories who would be joining me today. You may have seen her in Love on the Spectrum, where she really was kind of Love on the Spectrum sweetheart. That's how I've seen her when I watch what she does on the show and on social media. She hardly needs an introduction, but Kaylin Parlo, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. Yeah, I can't. I'm so surprised. I feel kind of starstruck that you're actually here. <laughs> <laughs> Kaylin, do you get a lot of that reaction to from people after they see you on TV? Yes. Yeah, I get recognized in public a lot. Do people clamor you for like selfies? That, that happens frequently. Yeah, especially if I go downtown. It happens at least three times. Wow. And I'm I, I you know what? I'm not going to assume, but I'm assuming anyway, that you didn't have people following you before Love on the Spectrum. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> maybe for different reasons. Yeah, maybe. So I, I'm i sure you've had this conversation so many times, Kaylin, so I will spare you all of the details of, ans- of questions you've probably answered already. But I'm really interested how you're, how you ended up on Love on the Spectrum in the first place. It was a Facebook post shared from, it wasn't even from the original source. It was someone sharing someone else's post. Oh. Um, They were looking for participants. And so I decided to shoot an email and I got a response to which I was very surprised. And then a couple Zoom interviews later, Netflix was in my house. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So they, and so from the show, it looked like they went into each person's individual um, hometown to kind of work with you. How long were they in South Carolina. About three days. Oh, so it was a short period of time. Yeah. Wow. Were they really long shooting days? Yeah. It was it was like eight or nine hours each day. Wow. Before Love on the Spectrum, how old were you, if you don't mind me asking? I was 24 when they filmed, and I'm 25, almost 26 now. Okay. So at the time right before filming, would you say you were dabbling in dating or was it kind of more this love on the spectrum type of opportunity that really opened you up to more dating opportunities? I had dated a guy in high school um, and that was kind of like an on and off thing like my most high school relationships are. Um, yeah. <laughs> after that, I dated a guy who was legally blind, like had a guide dog kind of blind. Um, and he had broken up with me for being too disabled, which was funny because I had driven us to the restaurant where he broke up with me. Um, so I left and he didn't have a way home because again, I'm the one who has a driver's license. So okay, my dating history in a nutshell. (laughs) That's quite the story, Kayla. That has to be one for the books. Wait, wait. So he broke up with you because you were too disabled. Correct. Yeah. He wanted to have kids and live in a big city and get married. And he's just he had just decided that those things were incompatible with me and because of my condition and that he just he needed to find somebody else, which, like I said, it was really ironic because I was the one who drove <laughs> us both to the restaurant on account of he didn't have a car because he couldn't drive. 
wow, that's, I'm, sorry, I'm laughing because the way no, you tell this story is hilarious. So ironic. <laughs> it, it really is. It's almost, it sounds made up. I know it's not made up, but it sounds like it would be something that, that you yeah. would see on a, on a sitcom. Right. Has your life changed pretty significantly since filming? Yeah, I would say so. I think the biggest shift has been the shift I've had at work. Um, I've kind of got a unique situation in that the nonprofit that I work for is actually where I went to school for high school. Um, oh, wow. They do, yeah, they do services like across the spectrum. So from diagnosis, assuming it's around the age of two, all the way through adulthood. Um, there's an education program and you can get a real high school diploma through there. Um, so that's where I went for high school. And then after that, I became an RBT and I've been an RBT there ever since. But after Love on the Spectrum has aired, I have moved into a different role, so I'm only doing four hours of direct work, and the other four hours I'm doing writing, I'm public speaking, I'm making videos, and so that shift has been pretty significant. Wow. Do you have a preference for one over the other? Um, I like both for different reasons. I sometimes feel like I'm trying to claw my way out of direct work, and I have been for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. But then there are days that I'll have cancellations, and then I maybe, you know, don't work with clients at all. And then I'm sad. So yeah. I feel like <laughs> it's a double-edged be, sword. Yeah, I gotta have a little bit. Were you ever in therapy for ABA? No, but I should have been. Um, <laughs> Can you elaborate? Yeah, when I was diagnosed, um, obviously, I didn't read any of the paperwork then. But now as an adult with access to my medical records, I had read that in the evaluation that my problem behavior, my maladaptive behavior was considered clinically significant and needing intervention. Mm. Okay, Um, they there really wasn't a whole lot of that at the time, just because I've been so language abled. I spoke early, I spoke in sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never had a problem with articulation. And so ABA wasn't available in my area for people like me. What were the problem behaviors that were listed? It was a lot of like noncompliance in various forms. It wasn't noncompliance in the traditional sense of, you know, tantrum behavior necessarily, but sure. it was a lot of arguing or negotiating. Um, and when you've got a lot of language that works really well on adults, especially if your language is advanced for your age, they're very impressed by it. So I was able to, it, there was just a lot of avoidance. So it wasn't, it wasn't, oh, I think Kaylin might be autistic. It was, I think Kaylin might be a lawyer one of these days. <laughs> yeah, no, they, <laughs> several adults told me that growing up. <laughs> is that something you ever would be interested in considering where yeah. you're at now? <laughs> There really is nothing exciting about it, let's be honest. So I want your thoughts on the words, a few words that you use. You use problem behavior and you you use noncompliance, which have gained some attention in the ABA field for various reasons. And I kind of want your view on whether you think these things are harmful or helpful or neither. I don't know. It's That's a tricky one. I think... To, I guess to put it in a way that maybe your audience might appreciate, I don't think we should cancel the term problem behavior. Um, I think <laughs> my behavior, I don't think my behavior was problematic. It was problematic for those around me. And it was problematic for me in the sense that it interfered with my learning. Um, mm. I lost out on a lot of educational opportunities because of it. I lost out on recreational opportunities because of it. Because of it. Um, and it would cause a lot of conflict with adults, you know, and that wasn't a good time. It was a problem for everybody all around. Mm-hmm. How do we discriminate between what's a problem for everybody else and what's a problem for the actual learner? 
the resistance we might see to to deciding what's non-compliant or what's a problem for the learner. A, a lot of the reason that I see people apprehensive to use the word non-compliant is because they say, how can we decide if it's a problem for the child? Maybe the adults are just the ones that don't like it. So that's why they want to change it. But I feel like it's really difficult to decide what's a problem for the child if they're not able to to recount their experience the way that you are. I mean, you have the introspective ability to understand that it interfered with your learning. But for people that aren't able to do that, I would just wonder how we decide. Yeah, I think that's a little bit harder. I think the main difference would be is if it results in opportunity loss. And again, if the learner themselves can't be the judge of that, someone else is going to have to do that on their behalf, no matter what. But I think looking at it in terms of opportunity, so are you losing out on your opportunity for education? Are you losing out on your opportunity to make connections with other people by engaging this behavior? Because if so, then mm -hmm. I, would, I would think that that would be problematic. Do you find that parents who talk to you take some sort of, uh, they have, they're more at ease with the understanding that you have an autism diagnosis or is that something they're not aware of? I think most parents are aware at this point. Um, I'm pretty popular online, so it, it, yeah. <laughs> um, it would be unusual for them not to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I mean, I've gotten some pretty positive feedback from it. People have said that it's comforting knowing that I could potentially understand their child from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's been positive. That's great. That's what I hear a lot of, too. I had a guest last week who uh, who said a lot of the same thing, that you guys are able to connect in different ways, that I don't have an autism diagnosis, so I, I there are just some things that I won't understand. I try my best to understand, but sometimes I just, I can't. Um, okay. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> are, there, are there challenges that come up? On the flip side of the, the positive aspects of being able to connect, are there challenges that come up because of the fact that you have an autism diagnosis? As it relates to being an RBT? Yes. Um, I think I've, I've definitely had my fair share of clients who I maybe don't I, get along with is not maybe the right term, but vibe with? I don't know that that's any mm -hmm. better. <laughs> like <laughs> click with or connect yeah, with maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I am someone who is t traditionally described as a sensory avoider. So I don't like loud noises. I don't like um, just the traditional sensory seeking behaviors is sure. not something that's going to come from me. So I've had a hard time working with clients who are the polar opposite of myself in terms of sensory needs. Mm -hmm. Does it, because the way that I guess I would work with a client that let's say I don't click with, or there are certain behaviors I see that I just have a hard time contending with. I want to know what happens in your mind when you maybe have had to work with a client that is the polar opposite of you. I mean, does it lead to a different outcome than maybe just frustration? For me personally or for the client? Mm -hmm. For you personally. I think for me personally, it leads to frustration after the fact. In the mm. moment, I am really good at the whole fake it till you make it thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of times kids like kids. I mean, people in general, they like, they find uh, mimicry flattering. You know, if you're imitating mm -hmm. somebody else, usually it's, it's because you like them. And so usually in those instances, I will mimic some of the clients, not necessarily traits, but likes or interests or reactions to things, um, which can really be helpful in terms of pairing. It's yeah. maybe not my favorite thing, but yeah. <laughs> it usually will get me through a session and it will make a session productive. 
Sure. That makes sense. The the fake it till you make it idea reminds me of the concept of masking. And can you explain to me, I want your perspective on what masking is. I think masking and when they talk about it online, I think it becomes harmful when you are imitating somebody, their actions or their personality or their opinions to the point where you're forgoing your own, you're, you're leaving your own personality, you're mm. denying your own opinions to take on theirs in order to be accepted socially. Um, and it's a problem because it doesn't usually lead to long-term social acceptance. It's just a short-term thing. In how this plays out in, in the real world, when we're in some professional settings, let's say, and we maybe for some reason feel forced to adopt a persona that we're not. Do you think that's masking or do you think that's kind of just an inherent part of being human? I do think it's part of being human. And I do think the ability to do so is actually healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And those who do not have the ability to do so are going to have a harder time in the workplace. And that's not right, but that's just how it is. Um, Yeah. You know, yeah, we're influenced by a lot of things. And not many of us have, I, I hate to use the word privilege because of uh, the, the associations with it, but I, for lack of a better word, some of us don't have the privilege of being our 100% self in every single environment most we're in. Most people don't. Yeah, yeah I exactly. Most people do. Yeah, I mean, even some people will say as business owners, you can make all the rules, but we, I mean, we still have people that we have to answer to and and be some form of a different person too. So I don't think any of us are absolved of (laughs) from masking. No, I don't think so either. When does masking go from functional and adaptive to harmful? So you brought up the example of abandoning your personality entirely. Um, And I guess this is where I get a little bit confused when people within uh, some subsets of the autistic community talk about how harmful or even deadly it could be. And I have, I'm wondering where that strong sort of opinion about it comes from. You brought up privilege earlier. And I think I've also lived a very privileged life. My Mm -hmm. parents have been very supportive. I've always been in supportive learning environments. And if there was ever a day that I wasn't, I was put in a different learning environment. So I've not Mm -hmm. necessarily had to mask in order to have any relationships with anybody. There's always people who I could have relationships with, um, you know, without having to engage in that much inhibition. But I do think there are people out there who the only way they will ever have access to any meaningful social connection is if they mask to a pretty, you know, high extent where they're having this completely other personality and other opinions that don't really align with their values. And I think that's where it can become destructive. I agree. And I would wonder how much of that do you think coming from these groups, how much of that is due to autism and how much is due to just kind of wanting to belong? I think both. I mean, I think wanting to belong is just part of the human condition, right? Mm -hmm. And then adding on autism on top of that, you know, you're I, one time I, I described it kind of as a cruel affliction because, like I said, part of the human condition is wanting to belong. And so how cruel could it be to have somebody who doesn't know how to do that, who, for lack of a better word, doesn't fit in? Okay. Um, and so to add the both things, I think that would be very difficult. Would it be safe to say that 
the need to belong might be heightened for some people with autism who maybe struggle more to learn to at, at naturally fitting in to places they want to fit into. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of us on the spectrum have pretty extensive learning histories that coincide with the opposite of acceptance. We are frequently rejected or excluded mm-hmm. um, in various ways. And I think those long learning histories of exclusion can really play into really wanting to be accepted. Do you think that has, not that in and of itself, but do you think that's a, a big contributor in terms of the neurodiversity movement? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In what ways? I mean, I think a lot of people who maybe belong or identify with the neurodiversity movement have, I mean, it's very likely that they have extensive learning histories of mm-hmm. social rejection. So I think it is very likely that they will do any and everything to be accepted and belong into any one group in particular. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm going to refer to a few of your story because you've talked about this quite a few times, I guess, the difference between acceptance and awareness and how I and you could correct me if I'm wrong, that you felt awareness was more important or more needed than acceptance. Do I have that right? Maybe. I think I have referenced it in that you can't have one without the other. So I've said before mm. that awareness is you know who I am and acceptance is you're glad to see me. Um, You can't be glad to see me if you don't know who I am. Okay. Do you, do you feel like people are more aware of autism now than any time period before? Sure. And if we're talking strictly about time periods, but I think if we're talking about geographic location, I think that's going to be a different answer. We're very privileged in the states to have this information, but I think there are several pockets, you know, places in the states where autism awareness is almost non-existent. Um, and then moving outside of the United States, that's a whole different story. So to say, oh, we're good on awareness. We don't need autism awareness. Everyone's already aware of autism. That's not true. That's a really nationalistic view, um, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So sometimes when... I I was talking about this the other day with a few people where if something has so much awareness and we've given a bunch of uh, research and funding to things, some people have said, well, then why does it need any more awareness? Does awareness ever stop for anything that's a challenge for people? I don't think so. I mean, I can't think of any instance in which it has. I mean, everybody knows what breast cancer is, but every Mm -hmm. October we do breast cancer awareness, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great point. I want to hear a little bit more maybe about where you stand in the neurodiversity movement. Ooh, that's a tricky one. I've got a complicated relationship <laughs> with it. Um, okay. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think they've taken it too far in the sense that when they talk about neurodiversity online, specifically on TikTok, um, as well as Instagram and almost any online platform, they really are talking about ADHD and autism, which Mm -hmm. is part of neurodiversity, but so is Parkinson's disease. And so is Tourette syndrome. And so is Down syndrome. And so when we say, oh, well, these are neurodivergent traits, that's just inherently incorrect. Um, And so I have a really hard time aligning myself with a movement that frequently gets information wrong. Yeah. So uh, what's the difference between neurodivergent and neurodiverse? Or is I think there a they're difference? the same. I think they're the same. 
Um, from my understanding, someone who is neurodivergent is someone whose brain is divergent or differs from the norm. So anybody with a condition in the DSM will qualify as being neurodivergent technically. In the flip side of the DSM, if you were exceptionally good at something, would that qualify as being neurodivergent? Like if you were a prodigy with, let's say, art or music? And just that alone? Yes. I don't think so. I think, as I understand it, the neuro being neurodiverse just means that your brain differs in a way, in a clinical way that is, you know, different from the mm. norm. So it impacts your cognitive functioning, your social functioning, your, you know, any of those, if those are impaired in some way or altered in some way, then you would fit under that umbrella. So it kind of more has to have, a, and I use the word negative, not in the sense of negative perception, but negative in the sense of how it affects your life. Right. It would have to have negative outcomes, I'm assuming, to fall under neurodiverse then. Yeah, I think there would definitely be some negative out attributes for sure. Okay. There's a, a theory that floats around, and I don't even know if this is just the neurodiversity movement now, um, but that, that autism is not a disability or, or a disorder, but it's something that is maybe a gift or an identity, and it, autism poses tremendous challenges for people and can have very negative outcomes for the person and their family. So what do you think about the idea that autism is not a disorder at all? Mm, to put it lightly, I would say that that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> excuse my language, but um, okay. <laughs> that one really, that one really kind of gets me going. I think it can be both. It doesn't always have to be both, but it can be both. It can be a gift for some people, but to say that it's a gift for all people is both incorrect and dismissive. Um, you can have a disability and there can be perks to it. There can be positive attributes to it, but this, you know, tiptoeing around, well, it's not a disability. It's a difference. I saw someone say online, that actually that's ableist. And I thought that was a really good comeback. Um, yeah. to, to, you know, you're afraid to say that autism is a disability. Like the, these people over here, they can be disabled, but not me. I don't have a disability. I have a difference. And someone had pointed out that that was ableist. And I think that's that's brilliant. I It, it is, really, if you really boil it down. Yeah, because if we're taking the theories and the definitions from these same groups that kind of um, perpetuate this idea of autism being a gift, then that is a very clever way to kind it of... It is, and it works. It, I mean, it shut back. it down, and I've not seen anybody be able to have a comeback that's really going to hold up to that. So I thought that was really smart. That is very smart. Have you seen any outward signs of ableism in your career, in your personal life? Yes. Um, I don't think anybody that I've come in contact with personally wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that guy or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ruin your life. I don't, I don't want to be near you. I'm better than you. I don't think anybody wakes up with that intention. Sure. Um, but I do think, I mean, we're all human, right? We all have different biases and ableism is just one of them. Um, people will sometimes attempt to speak on my behalf or, I don't know, coerce me into trying to do something that I wouldn't normally do. And this is as an adult in my place of work, just in terms of a couple years ago. Um, hmm. And this, these things wouldn't happen to my peers. 
with and this is the assumption that oh Kaylin has autism so we might be able to pull a fast one or there was yeah there was one time I was in a session and the both the clients were engaged in an activity and the other therapist in the room said hey I made this new food you should try it I know you don't eat a whole lot of new foods at your lunch break so I, I think you should try it and oh. I was like yeah you know that's really nice of you no thank you um for a couple of reasons. One, we're not on lunch. Two, we're in a session. Three, <laughs> that looks gross and I'm being polite. Um, <laughs> she, we go back and forth. She stands up and inserts her finger with the food on it in my mouth. Oh, ew. Yeah. Um, she was fired, but this isn't like a, I've got stories like that for days. Wow. So, I Which mean, I would, I would say that counts. Yeah, you're not kidding. And so that's that would be incredibly demeaning to anybody. And I guess my next question, I don't I I should preface this by saying that I don't mean this in the way that it might come across, but do people question if you have autism because of your skills? Sometimes, I'm sure they do, maybe not always to my face, but I'm sure they do sometimes. But it's never been brought up to you. Like, are you sure you have autism, Kaylin? Oh, you well, you yeah. quote unquote seem like you're not. Yeah, or yeah I've gotten that a couple times. When you get on international television for having autism, people stop questioning it as much. I guess they assume that the the you know TV networks will do their homework. Fun fact, they don't. Um, <laughs> but I think that's the assumption. Um, sure. But yeah. What might your response be if someone said, Kaylin, you just quote unquote, seem too high functioning to have autism. I think the reason people tell me specifically that and probably a lot of other people is that I am language abled. I've got a lot of language. I've always had a lot of expressive language. It's not been something I've struggled with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when someone says that, it usually points to a lack of information. And so the first thing they can jump to, the only thing they know how to point out is my language. And that's the thing that seems to maybe challenge people's beliefs. Um, Mm -hmm. But like I said, they're not really informed beliefs. So it's kind of the easiest argument to kind of pick apart. Is this tied to maybe there still being a lack of awareness with people equating autism with maybe more people that are more severely impacted by it? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think we definitely have a, a long way to go in terms of awareness. How do you feel about functioning labels? I think... Ultimately, they're not particularly helpful in that when we talk about someone who is high or low functioning, kind of going back to when people tell me, oh, are you sure you have autism? You don't really seem like you do. You know, you speak so well. They're not getting at my social skills. They're not getting at my cognitive ability. They're not getting at my executive functioning skills. They don't know what those are usually, but they do know that I have a lot of language. Um, And so usually when people use labels like high and low functioning, they're strictly referring to language because when you think of someone who is traditionally low functioning, you think of somebody who cannot communicate. When you think of someone high functioning, you think of someone like me who speaks in sentences. Um, So it might be more helpful from an objective and descriptive standpoint to talk about their language ability. So this is somebody who is you know, language abled. I am someone who is language abled and somebody who is, you know, using AAC, you might say they struggle with communication or they are, you know, language impaired. Okay. So kind of speaking to their capabilities as well as deficits versus something as blanket ish as low or high functioning might be right. helpful. Cause that's really what it's getting at. It's really getting at, you know, 
language ability. And then from there, if you're talking about somebody who maybe does have a lot of language ability, but their you know behavior is really interfering with their life, you can talk about somebody who's got you know high instances of challenging behavior. It's just more descriptive. It do, it tells you know the person you're talking to more about the person than high or low functioning would. So not necessarily that it's politically incorrect, but it's not super helpful. I see. That actually makes sense. I I think a lot of us are trained with the functioning labels, especially when we get these reports that come from a psychiatrist or a psychologist or what have you with the level one, the level two, level three. I'm assuming that you had that in your paperwork or am I wrong? No, I am too old for that. Mine was technically Asperger's. Oh, okay. Let's dive into that because mm-hmm. I, uh, I didn't realize that you were diagnosed such a long time ago. So how old were you when you were diagnosed? 10. You're 10. And so that was, you're going to be 26. That was over 15 years ago, almost. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the last case or the last diagnosis of Asperger's to be given out was. I want to say 2013. That could okay. Be so, so actually not too long after you got diagnosed with Asperger's. Right. And with them kind of grouping together all of these things, there's the there's the notion that people with Asperger's actually now just have high functioning autism. I mean, so so what would you consider yourself to be, if anything? If I were to get reassessed, they would put autism level one. Okay. Do you think that you would qualify for any sort of services? Um I don't think I would qualify for services that would be funded by the state necessarily. But in the last few years, I've been referred to an occupational therapist. Oh, interesting. For what reason? My fine motor skills are absolute garbage. Really? Yeah. How does that interfere? Um, I can't cook. For I mean, there's other reasons that contribute to that, but I can't really, I mean, I can't open jars. I can't open bags a lot of times. My hands mm. are just incredibly weak. Typing makes my hands hurt after a couple minutes. Writing makes my hands hurt. Um, problem is the state is not going to pay for my OT. So, I mean, obviously, because this is the United States. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to pay out of pocket and that was just not happening. Yeah. So you are involved as a professional in the ABA field. Do you get a lot of blowback from the autism community having negative experiences with ABA? Oh, yeah. I've got to be really careful. And if you've noticed in my posts, I don't say, oh, well, I'm in RBT or I work in ABA. I use very general terms. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a therapist. I'm an autism therapist. (laughs) And the funny thing I'm a healer. Right. (laughs) The funny thing is the people who would be so opposed and offended if I were to give the label RBT seem to really, really love and enjoy my ABA-related tips and tricks. Isn't that so interesting? It's just, it's the words that are, that are seemingly harmful rather than the concept itself. Yeah. They've got it associated with this other thing. And so they can't possibly see past it once you put the word out there, but minus the word, they love it. Does that make you ever want to just come out and, and be more, I guess, clear as to what you are, or are you okay with kind of being more vague? I think there are definitely some days that I do, um, but as it relates to posting online, impulse is not your friend. 
So yeah. <laughs> really need to not be careful kidding. on that. Um, I think it's not entirely necessary and maybe it will be at some point, but as it stands right now, I don't believe that it's super necessary for what I'm doing. I am going to be speaking on a panel at ABAI um, next year. And so I will have the opportunity to use the language and use, you know, the, the terminology and use my title for the greater good as it relates to the field. But as it relates to the general public, I think it's more important that they have information that is correct and helpful than it is that we have this huge battle that no one is going to walk away with feeling enlightened by um, online. It's just, it's not going to do anything productive. Let's talk about that. I <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on on social media and I'm very interested in how social media influences our perceptions of things and our behavior as a group. Specifically, do you think that social media has contributed in any way to a pretty large increase in autism diagnoses? Possibly. I think I would hope that psychiatrists and psychologists are doing their due diligence and yeah. assessing as they otherwise would. Um, I can't imagine that social media is really influencing them um, on account. Yeah. They get a lot of hate online for doing yep. some, you know, <laughs> not great things. Mm -hmm. So if it were to change their behavior, I feel like we'd be seeing that for the good. Um, yeah. It might affect people's wanting to seek out an assessment, but they're incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. So most people just don't have that cash lying around. Does it bother you when people diagnose themselves with autism? Sometimes. Um, I've got a complicated relationship in that, like I said, I've lived a very privileged life. If I needed to go re get reassessed, would I like it? No, but I could do it. Um, but not everybody is in that position. And so I like to think if I, you know, it's perspective taking, if I were somebody who couldn't afford it and couldn't have that money set aside for those things, but I had lived the same life that I had lived up until this point, maybe minus the being on TV, um, how would I want people to interact with me? How would I want to be treated by that community? And so I don't love it. It's not my favorite thing. It's not always super reliable, obviously. Sure. Um, but if the roles were reversed, I think that would, it definitely makes me think of it differently. Has anything surprised you uh, in terms of you growing so popular so quickly, specifically on Instagram? Has anything surprised you about your little slice of fame in the digital arena? Um, not really. I had been exposed <laughs> to the online autistic community long before that. So nothing they say or do is going to surprise me. The okay parts that maybe are surprising is the number of professionals that are sliding into my DMs asking for free advice. Um, oh, wow. I had a BCBA. It's, it's the BCBAs who are the worst, I'm telling you. Uh, <sighs> she slid into my DMs and she said, I have a learner who we are targeting sustained attention on non-preferred tasks. And she said that they were working on some schoolwork and they have tried a variety of reinforcers they were looking into a punishment-based system and just for the life of her, she cannot get the learner to sustain their attention longer than three minutes on a non-preferred task. Hmm. What do you do? What, what, what do I do? She said. And in my head, I'm thinking, quit your job. That's what you, <laughs> this is like pretty basic ABA 101. That's really, you realize I'm an RBT, right? Like that's really embarrassing. Um, 
I'm about to screenshot that and send it to the board. Holy shit. Yeah, I'm, you know, okay, Caitlin, I'm happy you bring this up. This is one of the things that I, I get a lot of resistance for is my criticism of, and I'm not speaking about all ABA professionals uh, could use more education. There are some that are great and they're contributing tremendously to the field, but there are some that just... I mean, we wonder why ABA gets a bad name and the theory is because of Skinner, but it seems more because of examples like the one you brought up. Right. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> when they say, you know, today's ABA is ethical and it's practical and it's kind and it's compassionate. Yeah. Sometimes other yeah. times it's completely <laughs> uninformed and not qualified to do its job and is billing insurance anyways. And that happens yeah. a lot. It's not some of the time. It's a lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. There is a Facebook group. If you're ever bored, Oh, they wouldn't let you in. But if you had a burner account. <laughs> Thank you um, for that disclaimer, Caitlin. <laughs> well, they'll check. That's the thing. They'll check to see if you're a BCBA. They'll like stock your profile. They say that on there. But oh, it's, wow. it's a support group for RBTs and RBTs only. So they, like, okay. they'll, they'll check your profile. Um, but that group, the fact that it exists is problematic in and of itself. Uh, the fact that it's as active as it is, is really problematic. And the fact that everybody is seeking advice from everybody else because they've gone to it, to their BCBA with, you know, whatever the problem is, they cannot get a straight answer or an answer at all if they're lucky or they don't like the answer or the answer isn't working, whatever the case may be. And they mm-hmm. are, they're venting to each other about problems that they have no business venting to each other about. Um, and the existence of that group proves that ABA is still... Um, not great. Not so the existence of that group proving that is it because of the topics of discussion or the behavior of professionals within it? Or what exactly is it that's the most problematic, you think? I think it's both. I think most people preface their posts with I've gone to my BCBA about this, I just don't know what to do. And then they've got mm-hmm. this horrible client problem, or they've got a scheduling problem, or they've got a so it speaks to more than just necessarily more than um you know client treatment or client dignity it goes Mm -hmm. to the other issues that impact being an rbt so scheduling and pay and benefits and how Mm -hmm. other companies are just not treating workers fairly i just don't know how being an rbt is a sustainable role it just it's so difficult right oh yeah i mean at my company we've got we've got benefits we're guaranteed full-time hours Um, oh that's great yeah. So it it can be made to be sustainable, but in most places, I don't think that it is. So with, let's say that all RBT roles were made more sustainable in the financial sense and what you get benefits wise. And that was kind of the baseline. Everybody got great pay and they got benefits. Do you think that there's still the nature of how maybe long sessions are and the nature of the work itself that isn't sustainable? Oh, yeah. I think long sessions are the death of any good RBT. Um, Mm -hmm. During COVID, we did in-home sessions, and each session was about six hours. Um, That was terrible. And then we came back from COVID, and then we would have your one client assigned to your one room. You cannot leave the room. You cannot go to the playground. You cannot go to the gym. You cannot play in the hallway. Uh, Mm -hmm. Have fun for six hours. Um, Oh, no. That was an SBT session, so... You also can't tell the client no for doing any of those things. That was a whole nother other problem. Oh, that yes. That almost yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've, I've seen, I've had a lot of conversations recently because a lot of people reach out to me with how, what my thoughts might be on these more, 
I don't know if socially acceptable is the word. Maybe socially popular is the word. We've seen SBT be very effective. It's a great course of treatment in some cases. In the case of for the grand majority of us that are in home or in an agency, what are the challenges to implementing SBT? I think people haven't, I think providers haven't figured out how to do it right. I think Mm -hmm. my company is an example of one that really wanted to jump on this train of this new progressive treatment that's getting a lot of attention and for good reason. Um, But the, in terms of implementing it, I think we've always kind of been at a loss. It's so new. Mm -hmm. And Hanley is just now talking about boundaries within SBT that it's not just a free for all because when I was implementing it, my understanding was you say yes, unless someone is going to be bleeding or in the hospital immediately. Yes. So even, yeah. even if it's, even if it's, you might be in the hospital, like a couple days down the road, as long as you're not gonna be in the hospital today, you're not going to be bleeding today. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Have at it. <laughs> um, and that is not what it's supposed to be, but they didn't quite tell anybody that in the initial training. So I think some companies, ours included, swung way too far the other way of, you know, oh my God, we are never doing escape extinction ever again. Um, and in implementing these universal protocols, which is great, but there's got to be a middle ground. So we're fighting that fight now as a company of kind of moving it back to the middle of it doesn't need to be over here, but it doesn't need to be over there either, having kind of a more um, central view of things. I wonder, I just wonder if people feel like they're truly being noble or they're, they're truly fearful that they are causing some sort of psychological harm to these populations. I just wonder why there is so much push towards say yes, no matter what in the name of assent or what have you. I don't think it's a fear thing. I think I know for me as an RBT and I think a lot of providers, regardless of credential, I think a lot of us realize that this escape extinction, you know, we're going to sit in the calm down room until you do your work. And it doesn't matter how many times you take your clothes off and pee on your work. I'm going to laminate your work and (laughs) we're not leaving until you do it. Right. Um, That doesn't get anywhere with anybody. And Hanley says for like, it just, it was mind blowing, but he says in any other environment, a daycare, a school, a home, a grandmother's house, no one is going to fight to the death over the work right. or the cookie or the, and so mm-hmm. now we're bringing intermittent reinforcement. In. And so unless you're in some kind of residential setting where everything is controlled, you're causing more harm than you are doing any amount of good because there's going to be intermittent reinforcement to contend with in other environments. And it's just an endless cycle. And yeah, you probably are causing trauma that way, especially if we're intermittently reinforcing that behavior in other places. You can do parent training all day long. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to extinguish extinguish that. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned too, something that is that labor intensive, even for a trained clinician, we could only imagine that people who have no education in behavior analysis, why would anybody be motivated to, to do something like that? Even if they are motivated to, to be able to implement that with fidelity, it's not going to happen. Yeah. There's only so much you could do, but, uh, to try to get someone to do what you want. But like, again, that's just something about ABA that I think might be helpful to people is that we literally can't control behavior. I know there's the comment, oh, well, that's what we do. It's our job. It's 
sure, we could control aspects of the environment, but we can't actually control what the behavior of another person is. I mean, that's just, that's impossible to do. And right. I'm surprised that something, a thought like that has become a little tricky. I just find that so odd. Yeah. Kaylin, I I have questions for you about a couple more things. I, I don't I could keep you here all day with my bajillion questions, but I will spare you. <laughs> How do you feel about this newer concept of assent while we're on the topic of learner permission and things like that? I think that's a tricky one. I think when I you know, when I first went through training to be able to implement SBT, um, I thought it was kind of a crazy idea that children could consent to medical treatment. This is medical treatment. And in any mm -hmm. other context, the child says, I don't want a vaccine. I don't want a checkup. I don't want a blood draw. Sure. No one is going to care their children. Um, right. <laughs> so <laughs> to have it apply to ABA was kind of mind blowing. Mm -hmm. um, and I was talking to a supervisor about it last week. And she had mentioned that I think it may be more important for learners with really intense, dangerous behavior. And we're talking learners who could potentially hospitalize somebody sure. um, if given the opportunity in terms of, you know, behavior out of control. But mm -hmm. if they're saying, I don't want to come to school today, and they could potentially put you in the hospital if you make them come to school today, maybe we stay home and work on the behavior tomorrow give the person an opportunity to work on it tomorrow. So I think there's a lot of nuance to that. Um, but yeah, that's a tricky one. It is. And I think it is because of the nuance to it. And I'm wondering your take on how we bring more nuance to a field that's becoming increasingly uh, polarized. I am truly, and maybe this sounds crazy and far-fetched and maybe it is, but I am truly hoping that more providers will take to social media because that is how we are sharing information with each other these days. That is how the word is getting out. I have an enormous reach on social media in terms of information that is about ABA, one that sure. I have not seen anybody else be able to contend with. And I am not yeah. going to save the world alone single-handedly with my Instagram, but <laughs> if more people want to jump on the bandwagon, that'd be great. <laughs> you could make a dent. <laughs> exactly. Are there BCBAs that have a problem with your view? Because you seem like you have some views on these more popular things that aren't really in line with the popular narrative. I don't know. I... I don't know. I think if they did, they could come. They would make it known. <laughs> they they could come have a chat with me about it if they'd like. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did you hear that, guys? If you have any issues with Kaylin, you could reach out to her on Instagram. And you could ask <laughs> her personally. Me, <laughs> <laughs> Keep asking Kaylin whatever questions you have. Well, Kaylin, I really, really appreciate you coming today. It was a pleasure. You, I, you were a trooper with my you know, grilling you to the third degree. So I really appreciate you coming. That's all right. I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're yeah, desensitized to it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Kayla. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it again. And I hope you have a good one. Yep. You too. Thank you. <laughs>